Conversation, a series of conversations brought to you by Investec Private Bank. Now, in these conversations, we tap into the expertise of internal and external professionals to really ignite conversations around the key questions that are keeping you up awake at night. Our aim is to ensure that we're all walking away empowered with out-of-the-ordinary insights. I'm Nozipo Shavalala, and this is Investec Focus Radio Podcast, which is, of course, a recording of a recent webcast where we were talking about resilience, an essential skill for surviving and thriving in volatile times, both in our personal lives and in the new world of work. If you enjoy this discussion, please look out for our previous In Conversation podcast that deals with the very real issue of cybersecurity. And so without further ado, let's jump straight into today's discussion. It's such a pleasure for me to introduce our panelists in this conversation. We're joined by Leslie Ann Gatter. She's the head of people and organization for Investec Limited. She's responsible for the people value chain at Investec, and she is an established practitioner in the people space. She manages the way in which Investec's culture supports and drives its people and their businesses to extraordinary performance. Leslie, what an absolute pleasure to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much, Noz. It's so good to be here with you today. And we're also joined by Craig Wing. Now, Craig is a partner at Future World International and a PhD candidate. He works alongside his clients uh, to understand, create, and design their ideal futures through imagineering. And that's his word, and he's going to unpack that a little bit, I hope, for us, and thinking from the future. His areas of expertise include emergent technology, business models, company culture, and the new world of work. So, Craig, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Nas. Thank you very much for having me. And hi, Investec. Thanks for hosting me. Yes, indeed. Real pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Craig. So I'd really like to kick off with firstly just getting us to a place of understanding the psychology of pandemics. And perhaps to you, Leslie, first, how do pandemics affect us psychologically? The reality of this conversation is that pandemics affect different people and different groupings, different parts of societies in different ways. And the continuum goes all the way from uh, severe traumatic, depressive and anxious responses all the way to heavy denial where the, the pandemic is not an issue, it doesn't exist in our world, and we carry on or attempt to carry on as normal, as if nothing is happening around us. The reality that everybody is impacted by is the uncertainty and the real pressure, the psychological pressure of having to navigate an environment filled with uncertainty and unpredictability. And we walk through unpredictability in an anxious way as humanity because it's difficult to not know what the next day brings and to not really be able to make strong sense of what's happening. Craig, as I come to you, I really want to also maybe lift this conversation a little bit to talk a little bit about whether pandemics can have a collective psychological impact. So in other words, can an entire community or an entire nation have a particularly traumatic response to an event? Yeah, no, it's without a doubt, that's, that's not only possible, it's very, very likely that it will happen and it has happened several times before. Think about 2004 bird flu in, in, in Asia and how collectively you start to think about travel restrictions, etc. But the one that I really want to focus on is 9-11 since 2001. Uh, you know, the cutting down of the Twin Towers was a, was a 
was a point in time where it is still etched and burnt into our collective consciousness, whether you're American or globally. And our reactions to that from a collective perspective was to say, how do we think about this in a different way? And to Leslie Ann's point, there were some mental models. Some mental models said, you know, this is conspiracy, it never happened, our way of blocking this. Some said, you know, we don't deal with this from a traumatic point of view. Uh, and so every year and every couple of months, you know, there's flowers that are placed at the memorial at, at, at Ground Zero. But then also collectively, we started to act. The airlines removed, for example, steel cutlery from economy in case something like that would happen again. Steel doors above the pilot so you couldn't get in. But all driven around a collective that felt this anxiety, this angst, this unknown. And that's really what the challenge is. But there is another way, and that's uh, the plus side. So I'd like to finish that little piece on, on an up note at least. Think about the collective reaction in some of the towns in Italy when uh, Italy started to shut down because of COVID. The collective response was to stand on the balconies and sing and bellow out and, and to share this joy and say we can overcome. That extended internationally with songs and, and applause at a certain power just to thank the healthcare workers. So there's definitely a collective response to pandemic. It is again up to us individually and collectively if we choose to do it in a positive or negative way. I particularly want us to unpack it in terms of today's context, more importantly. How does psychology explain what resilience is? Resilience is the capacity to recover quickly. So it's the capacity for us to be in a situation that is in any way threatening or detrimental to us and have the capacity to be able to get back to normal as quickly as possible. And it's most easily explained as if the individual is a stress ball or uh, some kind of malleable shape or object that can be put under pressure, it can be squeezed and compressed and recover its shape, right? It has elasticity, it gets back to where it was in a quick time, in a quick recovery with little damage. And that's really what we want for people. We want people to have the capability to recover quickly when under enormous pressure and have the capability to be able to survive in it, to be strong and to, to have that elasticity, that psychological stretch that allows them to recover in good time. So I'm going to be a little bit cheeky, Leslie, by going back and doubling back to the question of mental health. And you speak about the psychological elasticity. How possible is it to, to tap into that elasticity when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling uncertain, when you're feeling overwhelmed and that maybe is a way of trying to help us understand the the impact of this pandemic on our mental health and how resilience then fits into that equation as well so i think you raise a good point because what you're actually saying by by saying how, how do we go you know go delve into that mental health piece is really around something that is a little bit counterintuitive resilience uh, and purpose and meaning work a little bit counterintuitively to, to how we think about depression, anxiety, and trauma. So the, the first piece on depression, anxiety, and trauma is that no one should ever feel that it's them, uh, especially in the context of a global pandemic, which is an extremely abnormal event if we've ever known an abnormal event in the world. And the reality is that when we feel anxious, depressed, and traumatized through it, uh, there, is, there are resources there are strong resources that can help us out there and we should reach out to those resources. But in the face of that anxiety, trauma and resilience, the counterintuitive, cheeky thing that we have to do is, is pursue, nevertheless. You also need to be really decisive. The indecision 
further entrenches the unpredictability of what's going on. And so you land up in a really vicious cycle. In order to get to that virtuous cycle, that, that much more helpful space is to be very decisive. Make quick decisions on things, live with those decisions and have your goals in mind as you choose to do that. Uh, you will see that each day becomes something more productive and more helpful and resilience surges as you start to, to have that self-fulfilling you know, feedback uh, that things are going better, that you have some control uh, and that control is inside you. It's an internal locus of control. The pandemic is outside of us. We have no control, but you still have some control uh, inside you. And what that leads to lastly is really a sense of self-discovery, that you have the capability and the strength and the power for self-discovery. I think there's, there's a piece here which I think is super important that must be added to this narrative. And that's around the role of social media and this always on with the influx of information. You know, one of the things that's happened here is, is COVID has given us a lot of time. One of the benefits is we don't sit in traffic so much anymore. We don't go out. And so we've got a lot of time. And what actually ends up is a lot of people end up on social media on endless scrolls and endless feeds. What that then drives is drives almost the, the anxiety up. It's an irony around mental health that we've never been more connected, but we've never felt so isolated. Because we've withdrawn and said, how do we live in the past? How do we live for the what if versus the now? And that's a big problem. One of the challenges I believe is about saying, how do you maximize that time to do little goals and do little things and achieve almost some chunk pieces? Because the pandemic is out there, but it's not going to end anytime soon. But you can do little things on a daily, weekly basis, whether it's cooking, whether it's learning a new skill, whether it's finishing a book. And I think that brings it back into the locus of control for us. And so maybe, Craig, let's then jump into the question of systemic resilience. And I perhaps want to bring in this question of, does it then follow that if you are building self-resilience, that it has the ability to make uh, to contribute to resilient families, uh, that then extends to resilient communities, to resilient nations, and so and so the pattern goes. Is that a rational way of thinking about the ripple effect of resilience in any way? A closer example to home was, was Nelson Mandela and Robin Island, right? So, so here you have a bunch of folks who get sent away to an island. It's almost like a, a little community, dare I say, where you can almost examine them and see an experiment what happened. And what flowed from there were there were certain key figureheads, figureheads such as, as, as you know, as Nelson Mandela, uh, such as, as Cathara, all of them. But what really happened was these leaders, the ones everyone else looked up to, said, what's the direction that you're driving? What is that thing that puts you at the head of the table? Whether that is in this situation here with Robin Island or the head of the table as a company or at home, but the resilience factor really starts flowing down almost by saying, we need to make sure that we have a focus, a goal. What's the inhibition over here? For Robin Island, it was about saying, well, what's the inhibition? The inhibition is for freedom and for equality. And how do we have a focused vision across the board over here? The same thing holds true for a family unit, right? Uh, whether it's a family unit with a mom or dad or whatever, whoever the, the household may be, it's about saying, how do we build the resilience systems by saying, it's not just my own individual journey, but it's us as a collective. That then flows out. Again, coming to the Italian situation, which is so wonderful. And then it became a situation of now it's disparate households, but disparate households reaching out and saying, how can I be there for you? Almost like the example that, that I said before, you know, of seeing and, 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 and making merry. It's about reaching out togetherness. It's about reaching beyond, not being isolated, but saying, how do we do this together in a positive way? Because the locus of control is, again, now collective, not individual. I want to come back to South Africa because one of the things that has been true about the impact of this pandemic is, especially at a societal level, Leslie, is that it really began to expose some of the underlying fragilities that we had in our societies. And in fact, others would argue has deepened 
some of those fragilities and some of those hurts and pains that we have as a society. The question then becomes, how difficult is it to build resilience within fragmented societies? It's a, it's a really complex question. I think it's a really, a really complex area to navigate. So I think that we, we have to state overtly and chunk up the answer a little bit. The first piece is that overtly, pandemics push marginalized groups, pandemics push disadvantaged groups, pandemics push previously disadvantaged groups backwards. That is something we have seen throughout society, that crises of these sort always affect those who have been impacted by societal pressures previously by the way in which prejudice and discrimination and inequality has affected the world and it pushes them back further. It really, it really does. So there needs to be a heavy consciousness around that. So the, the counterintuitive question though on, on social psychologists and behavioral scientists' minds is are societies that were already fragmented or fragmenting actually more robust? in this crisis. Actually, they were in already in a position of fragility. And yes, it broke parts of it, but there was an underlying resilience and they were going to break anyway. And actually they've handled things like COVID so much better than those societies or communities that didn't have the fragility. Uh, obviously our assumptions would be strong, robust, healthy, well-controlled, well-managed, don't break. Uh, and those that are really fragmented and teetering, break quickly and the devastation is worse. But in fact, we're seeing, we're seeing both. We're seeing that there are fragmented environments that have shown high resilience. And I think there's lots of complexity in saying this, but South Africa feels like one of those environments. I mean, we've spoken about individuals, we've spoken about families, we've even gone as far as nation states in, and potentially even the world. But let's come back to corporate South Africa in particular. How's corporate South Africa done, especially with regards to its own resilience in this particular pandemic? Yeah, and also to answer that, let's take a step back, right? Most businesses are predicated around uh, almost defined value chains. So they're defined around a fairly stable kind of world, whether it is a, you know, the Michael Porter's five forces of supply chains and buyers and sellers, um, but it's predicated mostly around stuff that's stable and things are exactly the same because now there's predictability in the system. If there's predictability in the system, I can plan for it, I can forecast, I can line up all the different pieces to ensure maximizing the output, right? So that's where the world has mostly been set. And, but the problem is, not just the pandemic, for the last 20 years, the rate of change has been increasing exponentially. So if you check their minds, the average amount of time that a company has been on the S&P 500, in the 70s and the 60s, uh, it was 60 odd years. That number of time has now dropped down to under 20 years, about 14 years right now, right? What that then means is the robustness that we build into our business systems need to be broken down and analyzed differently. One of the challenges within a South African business context is we weren't able to be very lean and flexible in terms of changing those things. The easiest way to have a look at one of these examples is the airline sector, right? It's a prime example of global, not just Africa, where an entire industry was predicated around fixed, uh, anticipated delivery forecasts moving across the board from there. Once this pandemic came, all those different value chains, all those different pieces stopped. There was no longer an influx of customers. World travel shut down. There was an inability to pivot. A fascinating story is Singapore Airlines that said, what's the opportunity for us to pivot over here? Now, sure, they're down by 98%, but just an example of thinking and taking control, the locus that we speak about, was Singapore made an interesting pivot and they said, well, what if we were to convert our airlines, our airplanes into restaurants? 
And so now you can go to the airport and you can order a meal and eat there, right? So it's about very lean. It's the mental ability to say, well, how do I think about things differently? But more important, it's about pushing and saying, guys, we can't do what we used to do. How do we do something different for the future? Craig, I want to pick up on this word that has featured so much in the response that you've just given us, pivot, pivot, pivot. Let's talk a little bit about the big changes that are coming in the world of work and what we're going to have to pivot around and embrace with the resilient mindset in our offices, outside of our offices, as we engage with what work is for us now. For those of us that are lucky enough to stay and remain employed, it was the shift away from the office space towards the home office, right? Uh, there's a joke that says the biggest accelerant uh, for, for digitization of the corporate space wasn't the CDO and the CEO, it was COVID-19. Right? Because it really has accelerated the way in which we need to think about things working from home. But with that comes the complexities of things like Vuvuzelas going off in the background of Hardy Dolls, of kids bashing into our rooms, right? But that's now saying, well, how do we have a look at this notion of this concept of work-life balance? I personally think it's a flawed concept in the world that we're moving into very quickly. The concept of work-life balance naturally implies that you have to choose work or life. Now you work at home, it's all merged into one huge thing. So there's the ability to say, well, how do we think about this thing differently? Because it's now seamless. Yes, that adds to the stresses. Yes, that adds to the mental health issues. But the first piece is recognizing that people now come as their whole selves, literally out of their beds to the office place. So that's the first piece around that. The second piece around the nature of work is really the function of an office. Um, the challenge has been, when you look at a corporate world and you look at the office, it's all about amalgamating resources, about saying, well, how do we put people together so we can manage those resources and ensure we maximize output? What that then means is the future of work indicates that even just a workspace is going to change. It's no longer about allocating desks and roles, kind of like a manufacturing assembly line, but it's about saying an office space for work is about incidental occurrences, about those natural organic pieces of magic that happen when two colleagues bump each other and they speak and they come up with new ideas and new solutions. So even the function of an office space is changing. But perhaps the biggest around the world of, of work is a shift around valuing what does it really mean to work and what does it really mean for us as individuals? How does work tie into my identity in terms of who I am? But a big part around this piece around uh, the world of work is saying work is just one element of who I am and I need to consider all this kind of my entire whole life in consideration where work is just one element. I suppose, Leslie, the question to you then becomes, let's, let's invite resilience back into the room as we are confronted with all of these fluid uh, dynamics and these changes in our environment. How do we tap into our resilience such that we are able to respond to these emerging changes? So uh, on the first thing I want to say, what organizations that were able to thrive or survive well in this time did was that they obviously got their tech together really quickly. They got everybody off-site, moved the organization home, and then focused on, later focused on culture. It is a whole re-navigation of, of relationship, of hierarchy, and what makes meaning, what gets work done, what's like the oil that really gets the, the organization through. Uh, and delivers delivers strong results. So I think organizations have had to rethink a lot about who they are and be much more deliberate around culture and much more deliberate around survival. So there's strategic stuff, like what is the work now? But then is how do we do that work? And how do we engage our people? And what does this mean for us going into the future? Organizations are challenged by making uh, decisions like, are we going to be a remote organization? Now that it's a possibility, is that what we're gonna choose to do? Or we're going to bring people back 
lock, stock and barrel as if nothing ever happened. There was this you know, interim period of chaos and then we all just came back and went back to normal, uh, which would be quite tragic as well. So there, there's a whole lot of different decisions, that deliberate decision making that is about resilience, moving towards goals uh, and self-discovery for the organization in terms of who I am now is significant. I think what is profound to note is that never more so than in this pandemic has the issue of belonging, inclusion and diversity surfaced in organizations. Uh, and it's not a coincidence and it's a unique opportunity for us to think about how we create true belonging inside our organizations uh, with and without buildings to hold us in. How do I make work-life balance work for me? And are there any insights that you could extrapolate from your own experience, from the work that you are overseeing as well, for all of us to think about how do we find our feet rather in this new emerging world? So it is a new world. And like, like we said about COVID, it's the great accelerator. And, and I'm so glad it accelerated this. It, it was time for work to change. I think to, to the points we, we made previously, this notion of splitting, that there's a professional self and then there's a personal self, there's a home uh, and there's a work. Technology defied that long ago. It made work at home and home at work a long time before we had to work truly from home. So I think this is a, a balance nevertheless. Uh, there is a balance required uh, uh, and my own experience has been exactly of that. When my children were being homeschooled, and they were online all the time. We, we sat together in a room. I worked, they worked. They, they shared huge parts of my day and I suddenly understood theirs. For the very first time, I became ensconced in their school life uh, and the way in which they, they live their worlds. And I experienced it as a privilege. I experienced that massive integration and that really slamming together of the old myth of balance in quite a profound way. And so I think balance nevertheless uh, is the antidote to the splitting. We still have to find balance. And the balance now is between fatigue this digital fatigue that we hear so much about. So we have to manage that digital fatigue that always on with the absolute ease of always in. We, we're always in, we're always in our home environment, we're always in our, our families, we're always in uh, the ability to, to be very present uh, where before we had to split in terms of time. So it's a balance between these things. And I, and I say that the, the cure to, to the ill is, is mindfulness. The art of mindfulness, uh, which maybe seems esoteric and new age, but in social psychology, as well as, as other parts of therapeutic practice, has shown that the art of being present in what you're doing, again, being very decisive and choosing, this is how I'm going to spend the next half hour, and being there uh, in, in a whole and a very present way, uh, achieves a lot for the individual. So mindfulness, uh, that balance between always on and the ease of always in, uh, and then really making the most of the situation that we find ourselves in. We know that the impact uh, on the labor market has also forced a lot of people to start engaging in the gig economy and to and have forced a lot of people out of permanent uh, work contracts into short-term contracts and even out of short contracts into gig uh, contracts. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on that and if there's a way that if we tap into our resilience we might make the most of that opportunity instead of just inviting in the anxiety that it might come with. Yeah 100% it's, 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 it's prudent just to take a step back and say where are we and where are we with the unemployment numbers. So just to cast your mind back to Q1 2020 the official number was the unemployment rate sat at about 30 30%. 30%. 
Q2 suddenly dropped out to 23%, but the reason why there was a definitive drop, at least according to the economists, was because of the way they counted jobs and they counted the unemployed. And that is those that were no longer actively seeking formal employment. What that then said is exactly to your point, it was a review of what is the employment status, how do we think about jobs differently? But there's another piece here also, and that's the role of the corporation, because again, I've spoken about this. If you're driven purely by making money as a purely all-out hardcore capitalist intent, this is a great opportunity for you to cut fat on the system right now. It's about cutting fat on the system saying, well, how do we maximize our return? And therefore, almost every company, the biggest line item is salaries. So how do you remove that? Now, that's just a, that's unfortunately just a function of the way businesses is built where it's profit above everything else, right? So that's, that's the function. The dual effect and the second piece that compounds this is the role of technology in accelerating my returns and increasing my efficiencies, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's mechanization, whether it's digitization, it's all about saying how do we replace the manual labor and the people stuff with machines. So that's the, the, the perfect storm context around this change of jobs. For the human being, for the individual, it's about saying how do we think about the gig economy in a different framing? Now, the, the challenge is the majority of gig economy jobs are time-based. We pay you based off how many hours you work. There needs to be a fundamental shift in mind from the gig worker that it's not about a time-based role, but it's about a value-based role. What value do I bring? And the quantum that's associated is no longer based off hours or, or days or half days or weeks or months, but it's quantified around the value that I bring to the organization. So there's a piece that's super important about saying, well, how do I articulate and know my value? How do I know what I bring that's fundamentally different to what anyone else can bring? So there's that first piece. The second piece is truly understanding that gig economy, unlike informal labor, is usually underpinned by a tech layer. It's underpinned by a tech layer that allows you to do remote work, right? Whether that is to be a call center agent, whether it's to sell, whether it's to be a graphic designer, it's underpinned by technology. If we start changing the frame, and I guess this is a, this is a challenge to corporate South Africa, and even just our, our leaders in South Africa today, to say, well, how do we ensure there's more connectivity to allow for this platform of access so the jobs requirements are not just constrained within the Republic, but now it's a global playing field. The second piece is about saying, how do we unleash digital services and digitization to allow for connectivity, even though unfortunately, globally, African women are those that are least likely to access the internet. So there's a dual piece over here around responsibility of corporates and around leadership to saying, well, we need the underlying technology, and when I say technology, it's not just connectivity, it's also electricity, but then also for the individual to understand how do I shift my thinking to a value-based versus a time-based approach. And so as we begin to now close off this conversation, I suppose the question I want to bring to you, Craig, is having had the conversation that we've had, what would you say makes us a resilient people? What are your top three resilient building tips that you think would make us an even more resilient people? First of all, realize that change is inevitable. Change is inevitable, and as I mentioned before, this change is coming quicker and quicker and quicker. The cycles of change are accelerating, but there's more ways of change than are hitting us. What that means is then we must remain agile, both in our personal approach in terms of how we approach, whether it's life raising a family, whether it's our ideals, whether it's about understanding what it is to be right or wrong. It's really a question of challenging our biases. So the first is say, well, how do I remain agile and how do I always roll the punches? The second one, uh, you know, I've, I've stolen from the, the, the world when I used to be an entrepreneur. And it's such a great word because it's, it's, it's so interesting, but it's grit. It's really hard to define grit, but it's about saying, I'm strong, I'm robust, I'm gritty. The last one is super important, and we've spoken about this through the course of the conversation. Leslie Ann's mentioned Viktor Frankl, and I think it's so important to be grateful. 
it's, it's so important to say, you know, yes, times are difficult without a doubt, but let me count my little blessings. And without a doubt, I guarantee, you know, you count the little blessings, uh, whether it's in the morning or the evening, and you start seeing the world differently. So just to recap, the first one is remain agile. The second is be gritty. And the last one is be grateful for all that you have. Leslie, I think an opportunity for you to take us home. What are your top three resilience building exercises that you'd like to leave us all with? So these are going to be mind exercises. They're going to be about stretching uh, and building our psychological capability. And the first one is walk to the edge of the mountain because it's scary. It's scary to be at the edge of the cliff. But really what, what happens when we climb high and we look up is that we suddenly have a view of a very big picture. The problem of being in a crisis, the problem of being in the midst of a pandemic and all the trauma and fear of where we've been is that our view is myopic. It's an incredibly small view and it's hard to see a way out. Big picture thinking really builds resilience. And the bigger the picture that you can build for yourself, uh, the greater your ability to understand that we're in a moment in time, but the world is wide and time is long and far. The, the second exercise that I would really say is so valuable links so much to what Craig said, which is that it is a myth to not embrace change. You have to embrace change. Change is part of living. And if you, if you get over that psychological trick, that stability is what we're after, but rather work on your ability to embrace change and to thrive in change, to know that change is inevitable. It is going to happen. You know, families are going to change. Countries are going to change. Health is going to change. Unfortunately, but it is. And our job as humanity is not to protect everything so it stays the same. My third tip, which is that kind of like the old cliche around how do you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. Uh, it's really that crises are not insurmountable. If in your mind you say, this is a, a mountain that I can climb, and you take small chunks out of it, just small parts each day, to the point before you, you become decisive and you, you look to what is the goal I can achieve now and work very hard to understand all of solving this is not on any one person's shoulders. Uh, the crisis is not insurmountable. The crisis is manageable uh, in small chunks that you build for yourself. Uh, and if you can divide stuff up like that, uh, it becomes much easier and much more possible to manage. Chunk your change uh, because it's certainly going to keep being there at all times. A huge, huge thank you to you, Leslie and to you, Craig, for your incredible insights. I walk away so much more enlarged in this conversation and I know that our audience does too. Thank you for your time and of course, a big thank you to In Conversation that is brought to you by Investec. Thank you for listening to this Investec Focus Radio podcast. If you enjoyed the discussion, please take a moment to rate it and be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Investec Bank Limited is a registered credit provider and authorized financial services provider. The opinions featured in this podcast are not to be considered as the opinions of Investec and do not constitute financial or other advice. Thank you.